always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Second Peter 3, 8 through 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 through 24. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The word of the Lord. Jesus, this is the best news ever to people who need patient God. We are people who need patient God. And it's not that you became patient because we needed you to be patient. You are patient. You always have been patient. In eternity past, trillions and trillions of years before you would create, you were patient. Trillions and trillions of years from now, you'll still be patient. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to see that and to believe it and to taste it tonight. Help it to send us running to you or running back to you as we just have a fresh reminder of who you really are and what you're really like. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm going to give you a principle first, an idea, and then I'm going to try to prove it to you. Just a couple of examples. The, the idea is this, that the, the passage of time simplifies and edits our memory. That probably makes sense just on the face of it. As time goes by, it edits out all of the distracting details and it simplifies things. It makes them just very, very short, very sweet, very simple. Here's an example from conversations this week, but really happened April of every year. Uh, if you ask a senior who's graduating in a couple of weeks, what has the semester been like? What's, what's your last semester? Maybe you asked like, you know, trying to get them to share an encouraging story. I'm so excited for you. What's your last semester been like? And they kind of look at you and they're like, uh, pull up a chair. And it's like, well, it, it's maybe it might not be what I thought it was going to be like. I thought it was going to be front porch conversations every night. I thought it was going to be closure. I thought it was going to kind of be this four-month-long reunion with my class, my, my different friend groups, kind of getting time with everybody. I thought it was going to 
kind of be this peaceful sailing into the sunset out of Athens into what's next. But what it's been like is all my friends are scattered. Nobody has time for the front porch conversations. My friend groups grew apart a little bit this year. Half my friends and half my mind is in Atlanta or Charlotte or wherever I'm moving next. And you're like, oh, I don't know if I would have asked if I'd known what it's really been like. But if you ask someone who graduated a few years ago, what was your last semester here like? They're probably going to have a simple answer for you because the passage of time has edited out all of those distracting details. And they might say something like, bittersweet. You might ask them, tell me more. What do you mean bittersweet? Bitter because I was grieving the loss. Sweet because the, the losses that I was grieving were really, really rich. You're like, man, that sounds so profound. I'm going to write that down, try to remember that. The passage of time simplifies our memories. It edit thing, edits things down to the most important. So you ask a new Christian, a new believer, maybe you are one, maybe you know one. Or, comedy moment, you ask someone who's new to Reformed theology. They're like newly Reformed and they believe this stuff. God is sovereign. And you ask them, what's Christianity like or what's Reformed theology? And pull up a chair because they're going to give you more than you want to know. Maybe they do that at your small group or wherever else. And you're like, come on, are we talking about this again? But if you ask an old Christian or someone who, you know, maybe was introduced to Reformed theology decades ago, you ask them what the gospel is about or you ask them why they've appreciated that understanding of the scriptures. And they might have something very simple to say to you like, God saved me from the one thing I most needed saving from my unbelief in him. Get goosebumps a little bit. You're like, wow, passage of time simplifies and edits memories. Karl Barth was a, was a towering theologian of the last century, kind of in the mid-1900s, uh, uh, a German theologian. He had written a stack of books um, that would probably go from that edge of the stage to right here if you stack them all up lengthwise. So an interview asked him late in life, um, Carl, you've written a stack of books that could stretch across the stage. Um, you've been probably deeper in the scriptures and deeper into theology than just about anybody else. What have you come to appreciate most about Jesus? At the end of your life, at the end of your career, what stands out the most of all the stuff that you've learned? And he, he pauses, and then this little smile breaks out on his face as he kind of looks off into the distance, and he starts singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Or the Bible tells me so. Passage of time simplifies and edits our memory. So I raise these questions and I give you these examples to prepare you for another question. If you got to spend the day with the Apostle Paul, who if you're familiar with the Bible and Christianity, he's a big deal. He gave us most of our New Testament. Jesus changed his heart in his adulthood, turned his world right side up. Um, if you asked him, this guy who's given us so much of our understanding of what Jesus is like, and you said, Paul, I got a question for you. I mean, you personally encountered Jesus. You were his apostle. You went out and you kind of laid the foundation of the early church, which is still growing today, 2,000 years later. Like, yeah, what about you, Paul? What's your answer? What did you come to most appreciate about Jesus? 
in all your decades of living and walking with him? What would it be? It's a, it's a tricky question because, um, I mean, Colossians 1, Paul wrote, it's called the Christ hymn, and it's poetic, and it's beautiful, and it's about how Jesus is supreme, and by the word of his power right now, all things in the universe hold together. Science is an enterprise. Math is a thing because Jesus is consistent in holding everything together, and he said he's over all things, and all things hold together in Jesus. Is it his supremacy? Is it that Jesus is above everything? What about his sovereignty? Because Paul wrote those tricky chapters, Romans 9 through 11, Ephesians 1, other places that talk about Jesus calls all the shots. God calls all the shots. We are not sovereign. He's sovereign. He gets his way in everything. Would it be his sovereignty? What about his humility? Maybe you've been at a wedding ceremony before and the pastor, maybe that was the passage they read. That Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but set that aside, making himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, dying on a cross. Is it his humility? Did that make the biggest impact as Paul was an old man late in life? No. Those things were important to him, but it's not the thing that he marveled about the most in his last days. We know this because of that second passage on your sheet tonight, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy was one of Paul's last letters that he wrote. He'd written most of the other epistles, most of his other letters before he wrote this. This was when he was an old man. Almost his life, almost all of his life was said and done. It was almost over. And he tells his mentee, Timothy, this guy that he'd taken under his wings and he's training him up. And he's kind of handing the baton off to him, and he says this. He says, Timothy, and he says to all of you, and he signals he's about to say something that you should write down. Even the, way, the words that he uses, he's like, listen to me, Timothy. I need, you to, I need you to hear me. This is a trustworthy saying, and it deserves your full acceptance. Doesn't deserve you hearing it and going out the other ear. Doesn't deserve you forgetting it. Deserves your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display what? Grace? Mercy? It's humility, it's his supremacy. It's, it's not what arrested Paul's attention and confused him in this beautiful, marvelous confusion late in life. I still can't get my mind around it as a smile breaks out on his face. To display his, his immense, or in other versions, his perfect patience. As an example, here's where you come in, to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then Paul puts down his pen and he sings. Now to the king eternal. Here come the other attributes. You hear them? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God to honor and glory be forever and ever. But it was his patience that led him to worship that he's eternal, that he's immortal, that he's all these other things. That's what the passage of time had edited Paul's memory and appreciation of God down to. Let's think about this. Why patience? What does it mean? Patience is one of those interesting virtues or attributes or characteristics 
that is only known, only revealed when it's being tested. The very presence of patience presumes that there's a stretching of patience going on. It's one of those things that only reveals its presence when it's under strain and being aggravated. If I said, tell me about the most patient person you've ever known, or tell me a story of someone who's been patient with you, whatever story you remember and you tell me, it's going to be a story that includes you pushing that person's buttons, pushing them beyond the brink, beyond the breaking point. It'll be a story of you testing someone's patience, aggravating them, thinking that you'd stepped in at big time and you got what's coming to you. And when you ran into them or talked to them, what you didn't get was an iron fist, but what you got was understanding patience. You know what I mean? Patience only reveals itself when it's being stretched, when it's being aggravated. None of you would describe someone as patient if you'd never had a run-in with them like that. Does that make sense? Because you wouldn't know. <laughs> you wouldn't know. People in your life that you would label patient are people that you've tested. You've tested their patience and found that it held. And I want to know, have you ever considered that God is patient? God the Father, Jesus God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is perfect. He's not lacking there's no room for him to grow in his patience. It's perfect in his patience. Paul didn't discover some new trait of Jesus and was like, hey, y'all, listen to what I found. Paul had simply, over the years of his life and the failures of his life and the growth of his life, he stumbled upon something ancient. And he discovered what every other son of the living God and daughter of the living God has also known or come to know, grown to know. That my God is patient. So look at your page again. This is the first verse I put down there. Psalm 103. We talked about this whole psalm last week. This is the ancient theme. And I mean, it, this is a psalm. This, this psalm is quoting something that shows up in Numbers. It shows up with the people in the wilderness with the Lord. This is ancient. But he says here, the Lord is compassionate. And he's gracious. He's slow to anger. Does not overturn the propaganda in our heads. That he's quick-tempered. He has a short fuse. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. There's a surplus of love. He's overflowing in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. So think about this. Let me just throw some synonyms at you or some other ways of hearing that to try to get in. God is slow to anger when he's provoked. This might be hard for some of you because you had a mom or a dad or a coach or a teacher who was quick to anger when you provoked them. Hard for you to imagine God being holy, which means beautifully different and in a class of his own. Uh, he is calm under pressure, unfazed. It's not that he's checked out and that's why he's fine. Some people... They're calm people because they're checked out. And that's not admirable, right? No one's aspiring to be checked out so that I can be calm. 
He's paying attention, but he's calm under pressure. He's steady under strain. He's slow to speak. Imagine that. Have you ever thought about that? God is a God. If anybody had the right to speak, if anybody has the right and the authority to tell it like it is, it is the creator God who has never not existed. He's always been. And he tells us he is slow to speak, quick to listen to itty-bitty little creatures who are gone like that, who don't know what we're talking about. I say that in love. I don't know what I'm talking about most of the time. I'm 40. What have I, what have I experienced? He listens to us. It blows your mind. It should blow our mind when Jesus sits with a woman at a well and he asks her questions. <laughs> he shuts up and he listens. This, look, this was an amazing woman. He turned her life around, but she had no idea what she was talking about. None. Just spewing propaganda, spewing ignorance about God and what he's like and all this stuff. And she's trying to kind of pretend her way out of being found out, but, but he listens to her. God is a God who's slow to speak and quick to listen. He's slow to anger. Jesus, Jesus called his disciples out. Sometimes in the Gospels, you'll run into these accounts, and he's like, why are you slow of heart to believe? Why are you so weak in faith? But three years into their apprenticeship, 24-7 apprenticeship, you would imagine you would learn some of the basics about faith, about belief, about who this person is. And yet, at the end of their apprenticeship, as he is crucified and put in a tomb, they all believe he's as dead as dead gets and never coming back. And he is so patient with them, even at the end. So this is picking up a theme that if you are a Christian, you know very well. Their only kind of Christian is a, is a Christian with whom God has been limitlessly patient with. And this made an impact on me and it started to soften my heart. For 24 years, God was patient with me. He still is. I mean, it's not like he stopped being patient at age 24 when he changed my heart. But particularly, I'm struck by how patient he was in those years of just endless provocations to him, living so presumptuously in this life as if he didn't exist or I didn't care if he did. And yet every beat of my heart he put there and every breath of air he brought into my lungs and every night and every blessing and every gift and every friend and every meal and every time of laughter, every moment of joy he gave and he gave and he gave for two and a half decades. He served me. Well, I found every way possible to get away from him. Um, Charles Wesley, and by the way, remember two weeks ago, God is holy. He's not permissive. He can't be. Do you want a permissive judge? Do you want a permissive president who just overlooks horrible wrongdoing? Just, y'all all do what you want. Do you want to, do you want to live in the land of laissez-faire? where it's just anarchy, God's not permissive. And we shouldn't mistake his patience for permissiveness. He's holy, he's like a lion, but he's a confusing lion. He's a lion that you keep hitting and hitting and hitting. And instead of biting your head off, takes it. 
And he warns you. He says, don't hit me. Saul, Saul, why do you keep kicking against the goads? Why do you keep poking and provoking? Do you know what I'm like? Charles Wesley is a, one of the founders of the Methodist Church. I grew up Methodist, so we grew up singing all of his songs. His name was on like every page in the hymn book. He wrote a song called Depth of Mercy. I'm going to not sing it to you, but read it to you. It'll come up here. But he's, he's confused about God's patience to him over the course of his life. Depth of mercy, can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare. I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his face. You can read. <laughs> Would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. Grieved him. Don't you ever mistake his patience for permissiveness. Permissive is, is, permissiveness is the mark of a parent who does not love you, not care about you, and is indifferent to you. God's paying attention to your life, my friends. He's paying attention to mine, and he's not permissive. Boy, is he patient. And yet, and yet, this last stanza, there for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love, I know, I feel. Jesus weeps but loves me still. This has to be revealed by God. What person would it just by intuition write this stuff or know this? And that he's patient and merciful. So let's dig a little bit deeper before we start to wrap this up. Why is God patient? What does it mean that he is patient? Well, I'm just kind of grabbing some thoughts here from scripture. I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said than we'll get to talk about. But he's patient because he's understanding. This is not on your sheet, but it's what we talked about last week. It's also from Psalm 103. And it comes a little bit after, it comes five verses after that first verse on your sheet. So soon after the psalmist is saying, the Lord is slow to anger, quick to show mercy. In other words, that he's patient, he gives us a glimpse into why. How is he patient? First and foremost, because it's his nature. He is patient. Therefore, he does patience. But he gives us a little bit of a more interesting understanding of this. He says, the Lord himself knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. The message translates that he knows us inside and out and keeps in mind that we're made of mud. Weak little creatures. Tiny little brains. We think we got the world figured out, reality figured out, all of the cosmos, existential reality figured out. And the Psalms also say the Lord laughs in the face of our presumptuousness. But here it says he remembers that you're dust, remembers you're tiny, he remembers you're limited. Um, this was, I told this story before. Um, I don't remember when, but last year, early on in the pandemic, when everything was shut down and the schools were doing like virtual learning, two, uh, Eli, our seven-year-old, was, was in kindergarten that year and they 
delivered iPads to all the houses, and that's what they did school on now. So it was the first time since I was in kindergarten, I got to witness kindergarten happening in my house as we were stuck inside all day too, and so we're like hearing eight hours of kindergarten instruction going on with like 25 five-year-olds on iPads. Can you imagine that audio? Um, Anna it was a graduate of uh, the College of Ed here, early childhood, and it, she said to me, I could never be a kindergarten teacher. And that's what she studied in school. And the reason why is because the, constantly, uh, this teacher, Ms. Paxton, who was Eli's teacher, was constantly saying like, Eli, 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 Tanner, 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 unmute uh, mute your thing, mute your thing. Uh, Elisa, where'd you go? Come back. Elisa, are you there? Come back. Stop fighting with your brother, so-and-so. And I'm thinking anybody else in that classroom would just, would, would just melt and die. Like, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> but I marveled at Ms. Paxson, and it occurred to me God really cut her out just for this. It was amazing to see. I mean, as annoying as it was, it was also pretty amazing to see because, you know, I'm marveling at her. You have to love five-year-olds to teach five-year-olds. You have to love their tiny little brains and their limited cognitive abilities and their question, 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 stupid questions. I was listening. They're dumb questions. And I was like, she just covered that six times ago. <laughs> You have to delight in their blossoming personalities, the innocence that they don't know who they are yet. You've got to appreciate the fact that they think potty talk is comedy gold and always will the entirety of your time with them. You've got to understand that they're little balls of energy and they can't control their emotions at all. You've got to, you've got to know them. You've got to get them to be able to love them and to be patient with them. If one of your UGA professors got put in that scenario, they don't get five-year-olds. Probably don't love five-year-olds. They, they can't teach five-year-olds. You can't love sinners unless you get sinners. You can't love human beings unless you get them, unless you remember their frame, that they are dust. And that we are rebellious. That we are forgetful. That we are on again, off again. That we are constantly with God. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You can't love sinners unless you get them. Unless you understand them. You can't delight in redeemed people unless even their weakness is something that you appreciate. God is patient with you because he remembers your frame that you are dust. He remembers, though you and I forget all the time, that though it might take a millisecond to justify you and declare you innocent in Jesus, it takes a lifetime to sanctify you and make you good again. We are impatient with ourselves and our own change, and we are impatient with God because we don't get the extent of our injury. We think it's a headache. He knows it's a traumatic brain injury. This is no Advil solves the problem situation. This is a lifetime of nose-to-nose -nose rehab with the spirit of Jesus in us. This is what Dane Orland says, given the depths of our sinfulness, the fact that Jesus has not yet cast us off proves that his deepest impulse and delight is patient gentleness. His delight 
not his duty. It's not just that Jesus is patient. He loves bearing patiently with his sheep in our infirmities and weaknesses, even in his correction of us. Which brings up a side point. Does God sometimes say, my patience is wearing thin? Does he sometimes say, you're testing my patience? Don't grieve the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Keep him separate spirit. Does he say that? Absolutely. But patient people say that. People, people who are being stretched and they're understrained, or they're understrained, they're, they're, they're being aggravated and provoked, in a, in a state of calm, they'll tell you, be careful. Because you're mistaking my patience for permission. And you're abusing it and you're trampling it. And it's hurting you, not helping you. Uh, Isaiah 42 This is a prophecy about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus enters the scene. Isaiah says, speaking of him, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he'll bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Hear this. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick like a candle that's been blown out and has that itty-bitty little orange glow on the end of it. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's how careful he is with us in our weakness, even in our ongoing sin. Another reason that he is patient, I guess you could call it, you could say it that way, is that he is painstakingly purposeful with you. This is what Peter is talking about. Peter is, you get the sense that someone has just complained to Peter and said, God's late. He's not showing up when and where I need him. He's not delivering us. Is he paying attention? Has he, does he hear anybody's prayers? Does he ever respond? Or just take us, tell us to take his word for it? And Peter says, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. And remember, Peter's a man who had to learn this the hard way too. As a man who tested Jesus' patience maybe more than any other. He said, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's something that I'm going to leave you to kind of continue to unpack in your own mind the significance and the implications that with God, a day is like a thousand years. Your worst day, did he forget about it? Did time move on when you lost that loved one and everyone else moved on two weeks after the funeral? A day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. Putin thinks he'll be here forever. Other tyrants think they'll be here forever. People with power think they'll be in power forever. And the Lord laughs. He says, you'll be gone like that. He also brings this posture into our struggles. What seems like a thousand years for you, the never-ending day, the groundhog day, the, the, the repeat scenario that you can't get out of, he's still there with you in that. I was uh, talking with some of you this week. We were reminiscing about your time here in college and um, so many times the day that you felt 
stuck in, it was this, this thousand year day. When's it gonna end? When's he gonna help? When am I gonna change? When is faith gonna get a little bit easier? When is doubt gonna recede? Maybe not off the stovetop, but to the back burner. When are the intrusive thoughts gonna die down a little bit? And just like me, I know you, I know you thought he was, he, he, he was impatient. He was not a helpful presence in that. He was sticking a trident in your back. Get better. Why are you still struggling here? You know, people say keep in step with the spirit, and I always thought that meant catch up. And sometimes I think it means go back. He's way behind you. He is painstakingly purposeful. And he will not let you stick, skip steps. Will not let you go from toddler who can't even stand to marathon runner. He insists you grab onto the table and learn how to stand up first. He's a God of process. That's another reason why. He's not slow, but he's methodical. He's a process God. I mean, we could spend a whole nother talk on look at creation. Look at how everything has a process. God doesn't just say, oak tree, boom, and this live oak that took 130 years to look the way it does just appeared. He's so delighted in an acorn falling on an anonymous lawn one day that nobody noticed. Day after day for 130 years, it grew just a tiny bit more. Or the seasons. You can't rush the seasons. He delights in process. How long did it take for this promised Messiah to enter the scene to deliver God's people out of death, out of sin, out of shame, out of guilt? Thousands of years. And a lot longer than that from when everything went wrong in the first place. How long will you have to wait for some of his promises to be fulfilled? It could be a long wait. But he changes people in the process and on the journey as he answers prayers, as he proves true to what he's promised. God seems to prefer in our lives the long, circuitous route, not the linear shortcut. And almost all of us want the straight line as the crow flies shortcut. All of us are confused. Why is this taking so long? He says, because getting you to the destination is not my goal in this lifetime. Changing you before you get to the destination, transforming you, making you like me on your way to the destination is my goal. Martin Luther said, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. And this is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet glimmer in glory, but all is being purified. So let me end with just one final observation and one call to action. A young Christian could not write the words that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And a young Christian, it would be insulting and annoying if they keep going on and on about y'all, bear patiently with each other, whether you're rebuking someone or encouraging someone or helping them, providing for their tangible needs, be patient. He says, pray without ceasing and be thankful and everything and all these things at the last verse. It would be like, come on, man, lay off. 
unless he's discovered the hard way that the only God he has and the one who's redeemed him is patient. Only someone with war stories and scars can say Jesus is perfect in his patience. You might be early on in the learning process of learning that as I test his patience, as I provoke him, as I want to grow, but I'm frustrated at how slow it is, you're in the early phases of learning what's going to be a sweet and sturdy lesson in your life. It's going to prove true. He's going to prove himself true. And the last thing is just this call to action. It's, it's what Paul says to do. Paul knew that God is patient to his core. Not permissive, but patient. And therefore, Paul says, we who are on a journey with this God, a transformational journey with the, this God in this life, are to lean towards patience with each other. Here's why. Let's come full circle to how I started this. For those of you for whom it's easy to believe that God is patient, it is because you know a human being, real flesh and blood, who has been patient with you. It is hard to hypothesize that God is patient unless you've experienced patience from somebody. So you get to be that somebody to somebody else. Stretches under testing, under provocation, under strain. Pray your heart out to Jesus who's patient with you and knows your, your tangled up little heart with your roommate or your mom or whoever. And he says, hey, I can give more grace. I can give more grace. We're going to work through this. And you get to go back and give some patience. Not permission. Don't hear me say that. But patience. It's how we're to treat each other. It's how we're to treat this campus. It's what we're to be known for. Those are patient people. Let's pray. Jesus, again, this is the best news ever because we are people, whether we know you or not, who need patience. Some of my friends here don't know you. And they need to hear that you are patient, not desiring that any would perish, but that all would repent and turn from their ways to you who is patient. I pray that that would be what they hear and remember from tonight. Some of my friends, many of my friends do know you. And I pray that they would know and be refreshed again, the burden lifted off their back, that you are not impatient like the devil is. You are gloriously slow to anger and quick to show mercy, patient down to your